Hello and welcome to Objective Health. My name is Tiffany and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Erica, Elliot, and Doug. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Hello. So welcome to the shit show. <laughs> we like to call it. So today we're going to be talking about uh, poop. I won't say it's one of my favorite topics, but <laughs> it's up in the top five at least. I'm not quite sure if I'm exaggerating or not, but I guess we'll find out as the show progresses. Um, so today we're going to talk about fiber. And we're going to talk about poop and things that are poop and fiber related. So I guess we can just start off, start off with fiber. And usually when we think of fiber, we think of the foods that contain fiber, like vegetables, fruits, grains, legumes, nuts, those sorts of things. Sometimes, depending on how uh, involved you are with the medical system, you think of something like Metamucil, or I think that's this, they use psyllium husk and Metamucil. So it's basically indigestible matter. The body can't break it down. It also can't produce it on its own. And yet it's still touted as something that we have to consume in order to have good gut health. Eat your fiber, eat your fiber, eat your fiber. So does anyone want to talk about exactly what fiber is and different types of fiber? Well, I mean... First of all, I just wanted to point out that um, today I have um, Uranus in the background because of the topic of our show. So if anybody was wondering Who's why there's... What's that? Who's anus? <laughs> <laughs> the solar system's anus. Okay. <laughs> and but yeah. understood why did they even pick that name? Out of all the names in the world, they call it Uranus. Well, I know that some people pronounce it Uranus, just to yeah. maybe take away from that whole anus part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, fiber. Um, I mean, like you described, it is pretty pretty close to, I mean, that, that basically is what it is. Um, but I guess it's a carbohydrate for one thing. And it's basically just um, chains of carbohydrate that are, um, indigestible by us because they contain bonds that our digestive system can't break. So we don't produce the enzymes that actually break the bonds on those carbohydrate chains. So we don't digest it. It stays <clears throat> in its same form as it uh, goes through our digestive tract. Um, the two major forms of it are soluble and insoluble. Um, insoluble fiber is basically like roughage it's like the hardcore stuff that really goes through the entire digestive system without being altered in any way. Um, soluble fiber, on the other hand, is um, it's more, uh, it will actually draw water to it. Um, it's generally considered the good fiber uh, because it, it does, it draws water to it, but it also um, is fermentable, meaning that the bacteria in our guts will actually eat it and produce other things, things that we um will actually be able to use. Um, one of the major ones being butyrate, which I think we'll get into a little bit later, but also different uh, um, different things that, that we're able to uh, able to use because we reabsorb them. So. Excellent. Okay, well, if we can't produce it and we can't digest it, why do they say we need it? Why would we eat anything that we can't digest? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think generally, you know, if you look into the kind of the history of how fiber actually started to get recommended, it's a bit of a shit show. Um, <laughs> I think that um, a lot of it came from kind of misrepresentation of fiber. Um, when they were first looking at the diseases of civilization. So like all these 
people who were on their traditional diets, this is back in like the early 1900s, even late 1800s, they were looking at people who were still maintaining their traditional diets and comparing them to people who, you know, from the same genetic pool who had transitioned to more modern diets. And we're saying, well, the people who have transitioned to more modern diets are getting all these diseases. So what's the reasoning behind that? And, you know, some uh, scientists came forward and said, well, you know, it, it probably has a lot to do with this refined carbohydrate. But some people actually took that and said, well, yeah, but it's because the fiber is missing. It's because we took all the fiber out. So it's not the sugar. It's the fact that the sugar doesn't have the fiber present. And I think like a lot of people kind of jumped on that because they didn't want to get rid of these refined carbohydrates. They were just like, oh, it's the fiber. So we just have to make sure we're eating lots of fiber. But really, as time has gone on and more and more studies have been done, all these benefits, supposed benefits of eating fiber have kind of fallen by the wayside. Like there's not a lot of evidence for fiber being beneficial. There's exceptions to that. But in a lot of cases, it, does, it actually doesn't seem like it serves that important a purpose at all. Yeah, so when you isolate fiber, you provide fiber-based supplements. <clears throat> the expected result was that you would see significant clinical benefit um, in, in using these kinds of supplements if the fiber was the beneficial aspect of the food. Um, but if you actually look at the data, there's very poor benefit you know there's very poor outcomes it's not the expected benefit that you would see um so there are certain things um that have been shown about fiber so for instance fiber does marginally decrease the rate that glucose is absorbed okay so if you eat a really high carbohydrate meal and it's got lots of fiber in it then it's gonna somewhat reduce your blood glucose response is you know you're going to absorb the glucose into your bloodstream at a slightly decreased rate so that's one thing another thing that it can do is it can bind up with basically it can via various mechanisms it can reduce cholesterol okay that's another thing whether that's good or not is highly debatable, but that is one established thing that some certain types of fiber do, such as those in oats. Apart from that, there's not actually that many things that fiber does do. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've read of a study where they had people eat fiber and they wanted to test the effect that it had on their blood pressure. And it lowered their blood pressure a measly two points, which is really not significant at all and just could have been the normal variation in blood pressure that you see as the day progresses. Mm -hmm. So not a big deal there. And I mean, the, so many of the benefits um, that are supposedly happening from fiber, a lot of times it might just be from the fact that it does slow down the speed at which um, glucose is absorbed or sugar is absorbed. Because um, one thing, uh, I was reading an article by um, Dr. Uh, Georgia Ede, and she was talking about a study where, she was talking about the fact that you can't find studies where they actually compare a fiber eating group to a non-fiber eating group. Like where you actually have them eat the same diet, but one has fiber and one doesn't. She said it doesn't exist. Now mind you, her article was from back in 2014, so that might have changed. But... Um, one thing she was pointing out is that um, in a lot of these studies, it's like the, the, they'll, they'll have a fiber group and a non-fiber group, but they aren't eating the same diet otherwise. So what they'll do is feed the other group a whole bunch of refined carbohydrates. And it's like, well, mm. that's, you know, the, the, the difference between the two groups might just be the refined carbohydrate, not the fiber. So it's not that the fiber is improving things, it's that the refined carbohydrates are making things a lot worse. So, Yeah. 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 Typically when you look at like the, so many of the supposed benefits of fiber is when you basically gather like a pool of data from the population and you're asking them what kinds of foods that they eat. Yeah. You're saying, okay, how much fiber do you eat? How much of this food do you eat? And then they gather the data and they say, okay, so the people who, who, 
basically report that they eat the most fiber actually have the lowest disease risk for certain things. But if you look at what those people are eating, and I think it comes back to what you just said, Doug, about, okay, so people are eating, let's say that they're eating whole foods. Mm. So instead of eating um, refined pasta, like white pasta, which is practically devoid of fiber, what, what they might be having quinoa. And while quinoa is not great, it's better than white pasta. Exactly. You know, and the, the fact is if someone, you know, since we're told that fiber is healthy, that there's that, I'm not sure what um, phenomena it's referred to as, but there's a specific word for, for this kind of thing that I'm talking about. Essentially, the people who make the choices toward conventionally healthy decisions are often the people who make other lifestyle choices which are considered to be healthy. And the people who who do things which are not considered to be healthy also do lots of other things which aren't meant to be healthy. So I'll give you an example. If we're told that fiber is healthy, the people who eat lots of fiber are also probably going to be doing exercise they're probably going to try to make sure that they have good sleeping rhythms. They're probably going to be making many other health conscious decisions um, in their life. Whereas on the other hand, if you have people who, despite being told that fiber is healthy, still don't eat that much of it and actually also live a sedentary lifestyle, eat loads of other junk food, sugar, um, and generally drink lots of alcohol and things like that, then basically, so you've got, you've got the one person who's trying to be healthy and the other person who doesn't really care about their health. And so it's so difficult to be able to, um, to reduce the, the one person's health outcome, the healthier person or the lower disease risk simply to, um, to, to, to eating more fiber. It could be any number of factors that they do in their lifestyle, which is actually making them more healthy. Yeah. I think that's called the healthy user bias. That's the one. Another thing to point out is that a lot of these studies that they are using are observational studies where somebody will just report what they eat, which you have to rely on your memory, which is not always reliable. And then they make a correlation based on the data that they collect which is not always reliable. But based on those faulty studies, most uh, dietary associations still recommend that the average person consumes about 25 to 30 grams of fiber a day in order to maintain their health. Yeah. And there, there is a slight reason for this because if you do eat fiber, It'll cause some bacterial fermentation in your gut and your, uh, it'll produce the short-term, short-chain fatty acids in the gut. And these short-chain t- fatty acids include something called butyrate. And it's good for colon health. It actually feeds the cells that line the gut and it can balance the ratio between dying cells and the new cells that are being form. So it essentially acts like energy for the cells in your gut. And butyrate has also been found to be anti-inflammatory and beneficial for the immune system. So when people recommend fiber, hopefully that is one of the reasons why they are recommending it because there is that one benefit. Yeah. And that actually is the one that they, they, they think that that might be the mechanism by which they say, because they say fiber prevents colon cancer, but studies haven't really borne that out too well. So what they suspect is, or what some researchers suspect is that the reason for it is actually because of that butyrate production, because butyrate, Mm -hmm. like you said, it does protect the cells. There's epigenetic um, qualities to the, the butyrate. Um, It actually will bind to a receptor that, um, stops it inhibits um an enzyme called uh histone deacetylase and it helps with the regulation of genes um yeah and and basically it it stops like unwanted cell proliferation 
So mm-hmm. one they they suspect that that that's the reason that fiber is protective, not because you know they come up with all kinds of stories of why it does because oh it helps to to um, move the food through um, you know your digested. Um, quicker or some people say slower and you know it it stops toxins from building up like there's all kinds of crazy things or it increases the bulk of the stool therefore that's better because it helps with motility and you move the stool through in a more smooth manner but really what's probably going on is it's because of the butyrate Mm -hmm. I think that one go ahead Elliot I just yeah so it's undeniable that butyrate is like a really cool thing, yeah? Um, just butyrate supplementation, just with this short-chain fatty acid, you find it in small amounts in certain types of foods, like butter, uh, that contains some butyrate, and some other things like fresh cream, I think. Um, but just even supplementation with it has actually found very good results in certain gastrointestinal disorders. Um, so the butyrate definitely seems to be cool. And it's not only, um, it's not only just having an effect on the cells lining the gut, but it's actually, um, theorized to be like almost a systemic effect as well. So the butyrate is actually this special kind of fat is actually getting into the bloodstream, having various kind of signaling effects, to the immune cells in the gut, but also potentially to the brain, um, to the neurological system, and to various other systems, to cardiovascular system. Um, and there's all of these postulated really beneficial effects of this fat. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, a lot of us here, uh, well, all of us here are doing low-carb diets in, in some respect. And, um, you know, a low-carbohydrate diet necessarily is going to be lower in fiber than a standard or high-fiber diet, or sorry, high-carbohydrate diet, just because where you get your fiber from is from fruits, vegetables, all these things that happen to be high in carbohydrates. So one thing that, you know, experts will um, often warn you against low-carbohydrate diets, such as the ketogenic diet or carnivore or paleo, all these kinds of things, is that you won't be getting enough fiber. And then you're going to get colon cancer and you're going to die. But interestingly, there was an article recently by... um, Let me see if I can pull it up here. Damien, it was called Fiber and Colon Health on a Well-Formulated Ketogenic Diet. And it's by some fairly well-known researchers in um, uh, in ketogenic diets. Uh, they wrote a couple of books, uh, one of which was, was called it, The, the Art and Science Finney? of... Yeah, Stephen Finney, um, Jeff Volick, and there was another mm-hmm. um, PhD with them as well called Brooke Bailey. And um, what they were pointing out is that um, on a ketogenic diet... Um, you actually are forming ketone bodies. So you drop your carbohydrate, your liver starts to produce ketone bodies um, as an energy source. And one of those is called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And it actually is only one molecule away from butyrate Um, and can actually uh, be used in pretty much all the same processes that butyrate is, is used in only in a lot of cases, it's actually better. Um, yeah. So for, like I was talking about that, um, that, that uh, um, the inhibition of histone uh, deacetylase, it actually does that better. Um, it's, it can be used as an energy source and it gets used in all the same places that butyrate gets used in the body. So in other words, despite the fact that you're lowering your fiber and you're not you're, the bacteria in your gut aren't fermenting it and producing butyrate, you're producing your own, more or less the same thing that does all, all the same kind of stuff, only some of it it actually does better. So if pretty much all the benefit of fiber is coming from butyrate production, which chances are is the case, there might be other, case, uh, other things involved, but um, certainly the vast majority of benefit is coming from this butyrate. Um, then you don't really need to worry about lowering your fiber 
because you're basically producing all those benefits via a different mechanism. And not only are you getting the benefits of butyrate, uh, if you are following a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you're actually producing more butyrate than you would be right. producing if you're eating a high fiber diet. So say like if you consider 25 to 30 grams a high fiber diet, if you are in ketosis, your liver is going to be producing 75 to 150 grams of beta hydroxybutyrate. So we already talked about the benefits of butyrate. So you're getting even more benefit by following a ketogenic diet. Now, a devil's app or someone might come along and say, okay, so, so if you can, you know, if you have on that diagram just then, it said with an optimized microbiome, you're producing butyrate. You, you, you're never going to be producing as much um, butyrate as you are beta hydroxybutyrate. Hmm. But the amount of butyrate that you supposedly produce via dietary fiber is still supposedly beneficial. Mm-hmm. But you notice on the diagram, it says optimized microbiome. So what we're doing is we are assuming that dietary fiber is beneficial for everyone. We're assuming that everyone's gut can produce a bunch of butyrate. But quite frankly, if you look at people's stool tests, they, well, there's various tests which measure the stool and actually measure the various types of fatty acids. And it measures you've got you've got three pr- primary fatty acids that are produced by the bacteria. So you've got um, uh, propionate, you've got um, acetate, and you've got uh, butyrate. And so if you run a stool test on someone, you can get a rough idea as to how, ma- how many of these fatty acids are actually in the stool. And so from looking at quite a few stool tests in the past, I can tell you that the amount of butyrate produced or um, with regard to the reference ranges, I haven't seen many people with a microbiome that is producing significantly amounts of, of butyrate. And these people are usually people who have digestive issues. So mm-hmm. while someone with like what you might call a robust digestive system might actually be able to derive benefit from dietary fiber, there are lots of people who actually it seems to cause more problems than benefits. It seems that you see there are many different kinds of gases that you can produce. For instance, one is called hydrogen sulfide gas, and this is a gas that's produced in the gut, and this actually degrades butyrate as well. So many people who've got any kind of digestive issues are producing lots of this kind of gas, and this is actually degrading the butyrate. And the gas is usually produced by dietary fiber. Okay, so the point I'm trying to get across is that um, some people might tell you that um, eating dietary fiber, it's going to produce butyrate. It's a really healthy thing to do. But I question whether dietary fiber is even going to produce butyrate in every person because it seems that dietary fiber some people might be able to make use of it. Some people might be able to adapt to it. But many of the people that I speak to actually um, actually tend to find that it exacerbates many of the issues that they have in terms of their digestion. So if you're fairly young and healthy and your gut functions well, fiber at least won't be damaging to your gut and can actually produce some benefits. But if you have something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or any other gut issue, then fiber can be a detriment. Well, yeah, let's put it this way, right? So constipation, one of the primary recommendations for people who are constipated is to eat more fiber. Okay, they're told to eat more fiber. Um, does this, does this work? Actually, usually it has the opposite effect. So there are so many people who you speak to who actually have had chronic constipation. They've been put on fiber supplements or they've been told to eat more bran flakes and things like that, Mm -hmm. like more insoluble fiber, like roughage. 
and it actually makes it worse. I think there's probably several reasons for this, but just to give a brief overview, when you consume this fiber, what it's doing is it's going into the gut and it's basically becoming kind of lodged. Okay. It's binding with water or if it's a soluble type, it's not, but it's basically forming like a, 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 a bolus. Yeah. Let's call it a bolus, like a thick, gloopy bolus. And as that is passing through the intestine, it's, it's essentially squeezing the intestine. It's causing the intestine to, to stretch. And you've got cells in the intestine which contain very high levels of serotonin. When the fiber pushes against the intestinal cells, they release all of this serotonin. And it's the serotonin which is actually excitatory, which initiates a cascade of events which causes the cells causes the intestine to actually squeeze. It's called intestinal peristalsis. So this is what is initiating motility. So the idea is, is that by providing more fiber, you're going to be initiating that peristaltic reflex to be able to initiate a stool. Problem is, is that um, I think that this, this mechanism, it seems, it seems that this mechanism may actually only be temporarily um, useful. It seems that with so much fiber, it actually has the opposite effect, whereby what you're essentially doing is, is essentially is, is like clogging up the, the intestine. You're clogging up the intestine, and sometimes it's so difficult. And it seems that this peristaltic action can actually become dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. You know, and by providing more fiber, what you're potentially doing is just blocking up the hole even more. And so, um, what I find the, the best recommendation if someone comes to me and they're chronically constipated, the best recommendation that I could make is actually to reduce all fiber immediately. And you would be amazed because they, they start going to the toilet within a couple of days. Well, there was a study actually in, um, World Journal of Gastroenterology, and actually, Damien, I, I think I sent that one to you. Um, the name of the study was uh, Stopping or Reducing Dietary Fiber Intake Reduces Constipation and Its Associated mm. Symptoms. And I'll just read you a little bit from the kind of the, the discussion on it. It says, dietary fiber is also associated with increased bloatedness and abdominal discomfort. Insoluble fiber was reported to worsen the clinical outcome of abdominal pain and constipation. In our recent study, patient <coughs> excuse me. In our recent study, patients who followed a diet with no or less dietary fiber intake showed significant improvement, not just in constipation, but also their bloatedness. Patients who completely stopped consuming dietary fiber no longer suffered from abdominal bloatedness and pain. These symptoms are caused by the fermentation of dietary fiber by colonic bacteria, which produces hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and methane. Um, gases that are trapped by a peristaltic colon exert pressure on the walls, causing abdominal pain experienced by patients. So just there, you see, I mean, they're, they're getting, in their, their uh, study, they had different groups eating different um, amounts of fiber. Um, and there were people who had kind of chronic constipation. And the group that stopped fiber altogether had the best result. The group that lowered their fiber had pretty good results, although not, not as good. And the people who continued on their normal fiber diet had no results whatsoever. They were just, they, they continued to have the problem. So, I mean, it just goes to show you there, like every, the, the whole idea that fiber helps with constipation is based on nothing. It's like that it, it's yeah. not in fact the case. It is the opposite of what is true. Yet doctors keep pushing it. And I've seen this quite frequently in my work, especially working with little old ladies in nursing homes. Mm. So if they're in a nursing home, they're not well in the first place. So you would assume that there is something going wrong with their guts. Sometimes their guts look a little distended and bloated. And the doctors will prescribe them fiber because they complain of being constipated. And I've had to manually or digitally disempact several oh, little old in nursing homes, I mean, they can have huge amounts of stool trapped in their guts and they have, you know, fiber is on their med sheet as what they get every day. 
and it just makes everything worse. And they have these large masses of stool that you have to, you know, <laughs> use the jaws of life to get them out of there. They have great relief after I do it, but it's bad that they have to actually go through that. And their doctors don't have enough sense to stop prescribing fiber supplements for them. We should probably point out that Tiff is a nurse. So yeah. in case you don't just thought she was. In my people's butts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think um, fiber is, it's basically all hype from what I can tell. I mean, the whole thing about the weight loss too, like people said that fiber actually helps with weight loss. I mean, that was a, a thing for a long time. And all these people were kind of loading up on fiber as a means of trying to, uh, to lose weight. But in studies, that just doesn't bear out. And the thing was, they were saying that it, it, it helped because it would make you feel more full. You know, it just provides this, this, it's like eating a rock, basically. It like takes up space in your stomach. And um, so you won't be as hungry because you'll feel more full. Well, this doesn't play out. Because, I mean, you can't fool the body that easily, right? Like the idea that the body is just going to be like, oh, I guess I'm full. Meanwhile, it's getting no nutrition from any of that. I mean, mm-hmm. the body, I think, you know, a lot of the, the reason for the, um, the, the obesity epidemic is that people are eating nutrient deficient food. You know, the body keeps on telling you to eat more because what you're eating isn't giving it what it needs. It's not getting the vitamins, the minerals, the the macronutrients, any of the stuff that it actually needs. So it's giving giving hunger single signals. Um, I think the same thing would happen with fiber. I mean, even just because you have a physically full feeling, your stomach, your stomach still, or your body is still going to be like, I'm not getting uh, the nutrition I need. So please keep eating. So mm-hmm. I, it, anyway. It, whether or not that's actually what's happening, the fiber for weight loss thing never played out. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Yeah. Well, there is some. Well, at least articles, at least, that say that it can increase stool frequency. So Yay. I guess that depends on what it means by stool frequency. How frequent do you want it to be? I <laughs> a bowel movement every day or I've, I've met people who said that they poop like once a week which is not good either but <laughs> I don't think that fiber is the answer to it I think that you must address the diet first before you start throwing fiber supplements at people yeah, yeah I think there are cases of people who have had like chronic fiber use um, and then they all of a sudden cut out fiber and it's almost like the, I think it's theorized that this, the intestine actually kind of becomes a bit stretched out. Mm-hmm. And so it can take a bit of a while for um, the intestine to sort of renormalize in, in terms of its um, diameter or whatever. And so <clears throat> in cases like that, if someone um, has been on a very high fiber diet for a long time, immediately cutting out fiber may kind of worsen constipation uh, temporarily. And in those cases, you may want to um, use some kind of a kind of a like a laxative, like a magnesium citrate or something like that, um, or like a magnesium sulfate. Or alternatively, gradually reducing fiber, um, mm-hmm. because if you think it's it's that it's that stimulus against the intestinal wall, which is kind of like the trigger for the peristalsis, and so if you are not if you your intestines are so used to having this really thick bolus coming down of fiber, and it's all of a sudden gone, then that could kind of trigger. Uh, like a temporary constipation. Yeah, I, I read about that quite often. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, people of- complain when they first start a carnivore or a ketogenic diet that they go through this period of constipation. Yeah. Well, because I think that fiber, particularly fiber supplements, can they they do cause a dependency. 
It's like people, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're taking it and then they get so used to it that, and they have to start increasing it, probably because of that stretched out increased diameter that you were talking about, Elliot. But I think also when somebody goes on to um, a keto or carnivore diet, um, a lot of the times they think they're constipated when they aren't necessarily, particularly with carnivore, because um, I think it's just people go a lot less when they're not eating fiber and when they're eating primarily or all animal products, I think you just don't have to go as often. And people might think that that is um, constipation, but really it's just that they don't have to go as often. So I think you need to you need to actually analyze and look at what you're doing. Like, are you actually constipated? Do you have do you feel like you have to go but you can't go? That's constipated. Mm-hmm. If you just haven't gone in a while, that's probably not constipation. That's just not having to go as often. Yeah, that's less uh, waste in your colon <laughs> that needs yeah. to be pushed. And more absorption of the nutrients from the food that you're actually eating instead of all the exactly. refuse. <laughs> now, just on the topic of the the fiber uh, going to the toilet and whatnot, um, I think it probably can be useful in some specific contexts. Like, uh, say if you were doing a very specific detoxification regime um, and you're potentially going to be dumping things into the gut um, and you want them bound up say Mm -hmm. what you you might usually use like an activated charcoal or a bentonite clay um, but there are some other kinds of fiber which are actually have quite a good binding capacity for certain uh, toxins, like if you look at mycotoxins, um, which are released by mold species, um, I think modified citrus pectin, which is kind of like a fiber. And then you've also got acacia gum, and that's like a kind of fiber as well. And these are very useful binders, but then they're not foods. Yeah. Right. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these are foods, but in certain contexts, like a dietary fiber supplement for a, a short period of time for, with this specific aim in mind might be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but to market these things as foods or as permanent supplements, mm-hmm. I think that's quite dangerous. Now I just want to add as well, <clears throat> is that like it was mentioned earlier, is that a lot of the backlash against the ketogenic or kind of animal based dietary approach is the lack of fiber and so it's often coming from people who have high level qualifications in science like phds or master's degrees or you know like mds usually people who've all all, already established like an authority and already have made numerous recommendations about the importance of fiber in the past so in their books or in their talks or in their resources where they kind of um, praise fiber. And so I think it's fairly difficult for them to kind of move away from that because they've already kind of like uh, nailed their foot to the stone, stone yeah. so to speak. But um, yeah, mo- a lot of the argument, we've spoken about butyrate <clears throat> and it's basically like, okay, if you don't have if you don't have fiber, then you're not going to have butyrate. So there's the one argument or there's the one kind of counterpoint to that, which is okay. But if you're on a ketogenic diet, then you're probably going to have uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, which is, you know, just as good as butyrate theoretically. But then there's also the fact that when you're on an animal based diet, you are getting a bunch of protein. Yeah. That is without a doubt. You're going to be eating lots of protein and protein. Uh, protein can actually form butyrate as well. So mm-hmm. I was looking at a couple of studies earlier and this, I mean, there's just one that comes to mind here <clears throat> and it was talking about how you have um, various species of gut microbes and they can basically take dietary protein, so dietary amino acids 
And not only do they make acetate, propionate, and no, sorry. Yeah, basically what they do is they take these amino acids and they can produce something called methylbutyrate and they can produce something called isobutyrate. Okay, now these two things are not very different from butyrate. They're all, they're all very similar. So what I'm trying to say is that you can, you can get this really beneficial short-chain fatty acid from protein fermentation. And it's been shown that the gut microbiota, you know, the gut bacteria are so fluid that they change. I mean, they change with your mood. They change all times of day. They change based on what you're eating. And so if you change your diet from a diet which is really high in carbohydrates and fiber, and you move over to a diet which is really low in fiber and predominantly animal-based, it's theoretically plausible that your gut microbes, or it's let's say it's likely that your gut microbes are also going to dramatically shift. Mm -hmm. And it's therefore possible, I would say likely, I would tend to guess that this would be the case, that your gut microbes would shift to a population which was more able to ferment proteins, to make butyrate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the problem is it just hasn't been studied because no one eats a no-fiber diet. You, you know, yeah. it's, it's so uncommon. But for people to say that, you know, people who are the, the, back, the backlash against these animal-based diets are all based on foundational assumptions, mm -hmm. on limit, limited amounts of data. And they treat this as, the, as, as if it's the be-all and end-all, when actually it's just a tip of the iceberg that we are only learning about. Yeah, I don't think that science or medicine knows enough to make any statements with absolute 100% guarantee at this point. I don't think we know enough about the gut, how it works, or about the gut microbiome at all. Yeah, it's like, it's like Sean Baker. Only, yeah, we can only make estimations, guesses, and experiments on ourselves and see. And report back. Yeah. Hello, this is Dr. Gabby, and I'm here with yet another alert about Cypro. This one comes from Medscape, and it pretty much uh, recapitulates what's been uh, said before. Um, you should never prescribe fluoroquinolones, either Cypro, Levofloxacin, Moxifloxacin, uh, Norfloxacin. When there's a urinary infection that is not complicated, when there is an exacerbation of bronchitis, and when there is a simple sinusitis, you know, search another antibiotic. Don't prescribe fluoroquinolones because the adverse effects doesn't compensate, you know, for the for the possible benefits of treating the infections with these antibiotics. So, um, the interesting thing about this particular alert. Well, it also um, specifies that, yes, there has been apparently more aortic dissections, uh, uh, retinal detachment, um, other than hallucinations, epilepsy, ruptured tendons, severe neuropathy, severe fatigue, and so forth. It does seem to admit that there is a genetic predisposition. That is, people who seem to have uh, genetic mutations that affect the synthesis and production of collagen are more vulnerable to fluoroquinolones. And the obvious example is the Marfan syndrome, which is like, uh, they have like an elastic uh, type of collagen. Um, several, several congenital diseases that are like that, but also very simple genetic mutations that don't necessarily uh, showing specific congenital syndromes. It could be, uh, you could be a carrier of a mutation for the glycosylation pathway. Now, this, the, the glycosylation pathway is something that is burgeoning. Um, there are books written about it, but they're all academic. And I think it's going to be like a new branch of the medical field in a few decades. There are a lot of research and discoveries being done about the glycosylation pathway. And, um, and apparently it's uh, not that uncommon to have mutations in these pathways as well. 
especially Caucasian people, which coincides with my experience that there seems to be more adverse effects to chloroquinolones in people from um, Caucasian descent. These people that are typically I see that are like blondish, you know? And even though I've seen uh, reported cases in all ethnicities, yes, it does strikes, strikes my attention that Caucasian people seem to be particularly affected by cypro and fluoroquinolones in general. So uh, that's uh, another thing you can do. If you can run your tests, uh, order genetic tests, or just like, just just so you know, because fluoroquinolones are prescribed when there is a complicated infection, they have their indications, but if you have some sort of uh, medical report that makes you uh, not an ideal candidate for, for fluoroquinolones, I will think that healthcare providers will go an extra mile to see that they will prescribe another antibiotic that is not fluoroquinolones, might be more pricey or more inconvenient, but yeah, you might be a candidate for that antibiotic. So just uh, as a news tip, goodbye. Well, thanks, Dr. Gabby. She kind of just busted it out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> it was that a health alert. Yeah, it was an alert. So we have to keep that in mind. That was some good information on Cipro and fluoroquinolones. Do your research because those are some very strong antibiotics and you just don't want to take them for anything. So uh, to further our discussion, uh, how about we get down and dirty and just talk about straight up poop for now? <laughs> okay. I have a little interesting tidbit of information kind of adding to what Elliot was talking about, about the gut microbiome and how we don't know a lot about it. And our topic today being poop. Um, last year in November, Science Magazine released an article about a poop vault that is being um, built, I should say, um, which is a focusing on preserving uh, gut microbiodiversity all over the world. And yes, they do collect stool samples. And um, it's called the Global Microbiome Conservancy. Conservancy and its um, efforts is to identify and preserve gut bacteria from different people around the world for study. Um, there's few studies of traditional people and they have much more diverse gut microbiomes and this is leading to a lack of certain diseases, right? And so like you folks were sharing earlier in the show, you know, they're not eating the standard American diet, so they have more diversity in their guts. And so this organization is actually rescuing and preserving these microbes and paving the way for new treatments. And one of these treatments is the fecal matter transplant. Yeah, fecal transplant. And um, just this last month, the FDA is all up in the shit with <laughs> trying to control how this is going to be regulated. And um, the fecal matter transplants, when they were first developed, kind of came out of uh, people people from MIT, microbiologists, and they proposed this idea of using fecal transplants to help with, what is it, L or C. difficile? Is yeah, that how you say it? Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, which is a really bad infection that uh, mostly old people get, like if they're in hospitals or in nursing homes, and it can be really hard to treat and really hard to get rid of. And so they, they take healthy poop, from donors and they transfer it to these people that are suffering uh, with an 80% success rate. So it's pretty impressive. Wow. If you think about it. one of the interesting things that when I was reading about that, if there's a traditional route, I guess, of transplanting it, I guess you give them the sample of the fecal matter and an enema, but they also can do it through a nasogastric tube, which is a tube you put down your 
your nostril and it goes down your throat and it ends in your stomach. Which I don't know if I were <laughs> if I were gonna have to have a fecal transplant, I would not want to take that route because just imagine if you burped after that. Um. <laughs> so right now the um, the FDA is trying to decide how to regulate these fecal transplants. And um, the two questions are, are they going to regulate it as a new drug, which would be extremely costly? And again, providing this service to people that may need it, elderly people, would be very cost prohibitive. Or if they um, regulate it uh, like they do organs, tissues, and blood. So uh, if anyone's interested in reading the article, it's called Big Pharma's Next Goldmine Poop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting, though. I mean, I've heard a lot of kind of anecdotal accounts on the um, the fecal transplants. And I even knew somebody who it was a naturopath who was actually doing them for her um, patients, despite the fact that it wasn't regulated, it didn't have any, um, uh, there was no um, company out there that was doing it, like providing fecal transplants or anything like that. So she was just doing it. Um, because it was in situations like, you know, I'm obviously, I'm not going to give her a name. Um, and it was in situations where it was like a dire situation with like IBD or colitis, some, some kind of, uh, severe, um, disorder and was just kind of, she, she found somebody who was healthy and had a healthy kind of diet, that sort of thing, got them to donate it, did it up in a blender, did the old enema. And the person improved. And I actually remember reading a story of a, of a woman who did it herself as well. Actually took a, a sample from, I think it was maybe from her husband or something like that. And because nobody would do it for her, but she had been reading about it, just did it herself and ended up having a, like huge improvement. So I think this is the future in a lot of ways. Yeah, just make sure you have a second blender. <laughs> don't do it in your butter coffee blender right but if you want to make money doing it there's also a place I think it's in Massachusetts where they are collecting fecal samples from people in order to use for the transplants and they do testing on people you have to be relatively young and you can't have a BMI over 30 I believe and you, your poop has to be healthy. So they run tests on your poop. And I think you get like $40 for the initial testing. And then if you want to come at least 40, uh, four times a week and donate a sample, you can get $40 per sample. So it's not bad money, really. The, yeah, over the course of the year, I think in the article, it says you can make something like $13,000 in a year just donating your poop to science. That's a pretty good part-time job, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I think that I've also read other studies or articles that said that um, a fecal transplant from a healthy donor who has a healthy weight transferred over to someone who is, say, obese that they can actually lose weight because of the, I guess, the healthier bacteria yeah. that they get from the transplant. Well, it's interesting because healthy poop has uh, over a thousand different types of bacteria and viruses in it. And so it, it acts as like a probiotic to help stabilize the gut. So if people have serious gut issues and they're not getting any relief from it, this might be something to consider. Yeah, it's interesting. Would the NHS cover that, Elliot? <laughs> a fecal transplant? Pardon? Would the NHS cover something like that, or is that considered a fringe treatment? I think in some places they're starting to. I think they are considering it, especially for C. diff. Um, and then there's a couple other things. It's it's still relatively fringe. I think you've got to pay big money mm -hmm. at the moment. Costs thousands of pounds. But, I mean, you would think that it, 
you would think that the health services would want to make use of something like that because yeah. it's completely free. So cheap. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah. Yeah, in fact, if they're charging thousands of pounds for it, it's like, what's the justification there? It's poop. Like, where's mm -hmm. the cost? You pay the guy 40 bucks, apparently. Done. Where's the other 960 well, pounds coming from? You have to pay the person who's going to administer it. Well, and pay the that's overseeing it. But <clears throat> I can't imagine that it should cost, you know, any exorbitant rate. I was reading about someone who just, um, she did it herself. She paid one of her friends <laughs> and she just started doing it herself. I think she blended it up herself mm. and then either put it in as an enema or I think she might have made capsules out of it. Oh boy. Like frozen it or something and made it into capsules <sighs> and then, yeah. And then just done it herself. And, um, she said it was completely free and, it cleared her up of C diff, C diff, I think. Um, mm. I don't know about the practicalities of that, but desperate situations call for desperate measures. Yeah, indeed, and the potential for this is pretty big too. I mean, Tiff, you were talking about how people would, you know, taking a, a fecal transplant from a thinner person would actually help them lose weight. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, in, in rat studies and, and mouse studies, they've done a number of different things with fecal transplants and found some pretty amazing things, like getting rid of, like, you know, um, psychological-type disorders. I don't remember the specifics now, but I think it was, like, depression or anxiety or something like that. Like, there was actual behavioral differences where there was, like, a behavior in one mouse group. They gave them a fecal transplant from a group that had normal behavior, and that behavior cleared up. And if I'm not mistaken, vice versa, they were actually able to create an anxiety disorder in a mouse just through fecal transplant. So the potential for these things, I think, is really huge. And I know that... Yeah, um, I mean, they're using it for autistic children, right? Mm -hmm. And it's helped alleviate symptoms. Well, right now, I think um, Michaela Peterson just released a video recently talking about how she is exploring that um, that possibility for her um, her issue, which, you know, if that works for her, great, because um, the fact of the matter is she's in a situation where she reacts to absolutely everything except beef. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, even though she said she plans on sticking to um, a carnivore or carnivore-like diet, even if she does get better, um, you know, just to be able to, like, <laughs> have a little bit of variety, like something, would be great mm -hmm. for her. Well, you can imagine that if she actually did have the fecal transplant and wrote about it or posted a video about it, there would be people lined up to have yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would um, that would probably boost the, uh, the popularity because she has a huge following. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's our next our next investment opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Sell your poop. Yeah. <laughs> or invest in food selling companies. Get ahead of the crew. Yeah, there you go. So have we talked enough about poop and fiber? <laughs> I didn't have any well, how about, um, Yeah, we look at that Bristol stool chart just to close things out. We can talk about what is a healthy poop and what isn't a healthy poop. And I'm assuming that whoever created this chart was named Bristol, but I could be wrong. But it has, I think it's a... Uh, it's a hell of an anything yeah. to be named after. Yeah. Uh, one through seven, which uh, I think most people can say they've probably had all of them at different uh, points in their life. But uh, the type that is most desirable is types three through five, with type number four being deemed as like the perfect poop so if it's smooth <laughs> and it's soft and it's like snake like i like to say it's like the width of one of your fingers that's how big your poo should be that's thin yeah I'm but it's happened not there it's happened. i'm not, not going to say who it's happened to or anything, but yeah yeah well I think, you know, most people should 
Well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think that most people should kind of have a, a, an instinct of what is a good poop and what's not a good poop. Like when you're mm-hmm. when you're in there and you're you're having some problems. I would think anyway. I mean, maybe people do need this chart because the, they might look at it and be like, "Oh, really? That's not that's not a good thing." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There should be no straining involved, no blood, and you shouldn't stink up the entire bathroom. Not to say that poop shouldn't stink. I mean, it does have a distinct smell. But if you have to like open up all the windows and spray <laughs> yeah. a whole can of air freshener, then something's probably not right. Yeah, because you're a vegan. that's one thing that i noticed when i went carnivore is that basically the odor just was no longer there yeah maybe (laughs) this is probably getting way too much detail but anyway we'll leave it there (laughs) (laughs) so everybody aim for a type four but if you hit a type three or a type five i guess that's okay too Mm. but maybe you'll get there one day (laughs) it's a worthy goal yeah so i guess since we talked about human poop now we can move on to zoya's pet health segment where she talks about dog poop why dog And welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. This week's topic is going to be poo. Don't laugh. Apparently some scientists take this issue very seriously, especially when it comes to the direction dogs assume when they unload the said poo. So watch the following two videos in order to learn more about the two most important issues. Why some animals eat their poo and why dogs take a while before they poop. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Hi, this is Emily from Minute Earth. Humans eat lots of weird stuff, but one thing we almost never eat is poop. Either because we're naturally grossed out by it, or because we've learned that poop contains nasty pathogens. But for lots of animals, feces is a regular part of the menu. That's partly because poop isn't necessarily as dangerous as we think. While poops from sick individuals can contain disease-causing bacteria, viruses, and parasites, and contaminate anything they touch, healthy poops are usually just water, harmless bacteria, undigested food, and some metabolic waste in dead cells. Poison control centers consider accidental ingestion of poop, human or otherwise, to be minimally toxic, and doctors even prescribe poop pills from healthy people to combat hard-to-treat gut infections. And because the digestive process doesn't usually manage to suck all the nutrients out of food, poop is nutritious. Herbivores, for example, leave a third of food nutrients in their poop. As a result, animals like dung beetles and flies subsist almost entirely on nutrients from the poop of other animals. And for thousands of years, humans have built toilets over pigsties because pigs can get almost all of their nutrition from human poop. And while some dogs will snarf down pretty much any poop they come across, lots of dogs will actually use their keen noses to sniff out fresh poop that has specific vitamins or enzymes they're craving. And some animals regularly extract leftover nutrients from their own poop. For example, when gorillas feed on the hard seeds of the dialium tree, their gut bacteria soften the tough seeds but don't extract many nutrients. So when times are tough, gorillas will often eat their excrement to extract the seeds full complement of fat and sodium. And when the southern cassowary eats cassowary plums, the fruits are so big and the bird's digestive tract so short that the cassowary poops out whole chunks of the fruit. It then turns around and picks them out to eat and digest again. Other animals absolutely have to eat their own poop. For example, rabbits eat lots of the same foods that ruminants like cows do. But while cows have long, complex digestive tracts that give the microbes inside time to break down the tough plant cells, rabbits have much shorter guts. So after a yummy plant meal, they poop a soft, mucus-covered cluster that contains the partially digested food and the microbes in charge of digesting it. Then they gobble the whole package back up in order to recover the nutrients and bring the microbes back into their guts. Finally, the rabbit poops real rabbit poop. Koalas, too, must eat their own poop. 
or at least their own mom's poop. They have a specialized diet of eucalyptus leaves, which are both fibrous and toxic. And koala babies aren't born with the specialized bacteria needed to break it down. So for several weeks, the baby just eats pap, a soft green poop chock full of those bacteria that the mom makes special for her little one. Pap both supplies nutrients and gives the baby the microbes it needs to digest its future food. As baby food goes, this number two is second to none. Watch where you're walking. If it's on the north-south axis of the Earth's magnetic field, you might be more likely to step in dog dew. According to a study from researchers in Germany and the Czech Republic, when dogs are looking for a place to poop, they align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field before doing their business. The study lasted two years, during which time the researchers looked at nearly 2,000 dog poops from 70 different dogs. They eliminated several factors that could influence the dog's preferred locations, like the wind, the angle of the sun, and the time of day. The dogs were kept off-leash and allowed to find their own place to defecate, and they often chose the north-south axis of the Earth's magnetic field and reportedly avoided the east-west axis. Researchers aren't sure of the reason behind the orientation, but they noted that when there was instability in the Earth's magnetic field caused by a shift in the sun's magnetic field and solar winds, the dogs didn't stick with the pattern and ignored the north-south axis. Wow. Thanks for that, Zoya. I never thought I would learn so much about animal poo and dogs and those magnetic accents. <laughs> that is just bizarre. Yeah. Well, I can say my life has been enriched. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess that that brings us to the end of our shit show. Uh, we will be back next week with another show on a topic that is yet to be determined. So uh, thanks for watching. Remember to hit the like and subscribe button and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.